If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To support the show starting at $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. This episode is also supported by our sponsor, Osea Malibu, the original plant-based results-driven skincare line. I was really excited to share this with you because I've actually been using Osea's skincare myself for the past few years, and I love it. The Hyaluronic C Serum specifically has been helping to keep my skin hydrated in this dry climate in California. To get $10 off your first purchase of $50 or more, you can head to oseamalibu.com slash greendreamer, and the discount will automatically be applied when you check out. Again, that's oseamalibu.com slash green dreamer. It's all around trade and tourism and humans have been doing it at an accelerating frequency ever since Columbus pretty much took off and started exploring the world. And that inspired other waves of explorers who traveled around the world and invasive species have hitchhiked along for the ride. That was Mark Hoddle, an entomologist at the University of California, Riverside, who's working on the biological and nature-based management of invasive pests, especially insects affecting agriculture, the wilderness, and urban areas. Stay tuned as we're about to explore when a non-native species crosses the line for people to categorize them as invasive species, how this human-driven issue may continue to aggravate and worsen over time, and how we can address their potential harms to local biodiversity and ecology using biological control and nature-based solutions, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. It was probably my first in entomology class I was doing at university. We had to it was a very generic assignment. Go to the library and find something that interests you and then report it back to the class. And just that week, all the new journals were displayed on the library counter as you walked in. 
And there was one journal there, Trends in Evolution and Ecology. And on the front of that journal cover, there were two photographs. And they were of a lake in Papua New Guinea. One photograph showed it being completely choked with an invasive waterweed called Salvinia molesta. And then the next photo, taken from exactly the same spot, less than a year later, was the same lake, perfectly clean, no waterweed floating on it. I looked at that and said, wow, that's, that's remarkable. And I read the article. They had released an insect that only eats that floating waterweed, and it had completely cleaned out that clogged lake in Papua New Guinea, opening it back up to fishing and transportation again. I think it was that article, it was written by some Australian researchers out of the CSIRO, Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, that, that put me on the track to biological control, that insects could control a massive environmental problem without needing any pesticides to do it. So that, that sealed it for me. Mm. That's what I ended up wanting to do. It was a very inspirational set of photographs and a great article to read. It was a great thing to, to share with the class. To go back to the very basics, I mean, all of this has to do with invasive species and the need to keep them under control. So what are invasive species? Yes, yeah, so for me, I define an invasive species as a non-native organism that's come to, say, California, for example. So that plant, weed, animal may have originated in Asia, Africa, maybe somewhere in the South Pacific, and it's been accidentally introduced into California, or sometimes they may actually be intentionally introduced. But however they got here, they have ended up causing some sort of environmental or economic problem that requires us, I mean humans, to manage it. So an example of a deliberate introduction would be an example of a weed species that was part of the ornamental plant trade and it escaped people's gardens and it naturalized in, in the wild. And we have some very invasive grasses here in California, especially Southern California. There's something called fountain grass, which is from Africa. It's a popular ornamental grass that's been widely sold and distributed, but it hasn't stayed in people's gardens. You know, it's colonized large areas of natural rangeland and parks in Southern California, and it forms very thick cover now, which makes it hard for a lot of the, the native grasses and plants to grow in those areas. An example of an accidental introduction is one that we are dealing with right now. It's the um, Asian citrus psyllid. And as its name suggests, it's native to Asia, probably the Indian subcontinent. It's been introduced accidentally into California, and it's a major threat to our $7 billion a year citrus industry. Mm. Not really because this bug sucks juice out of plants but because it spreads a disease-causing bacterium. And once that bacterium gets into the citrus tree, it's a death sentence, and the tree dies within about five to eight years. And a lot of us have citrus in our backyards, and that's probably something that's going to disappear over the next 10 to 15 years as this insect continues to spread and the disease-causing organism it carries with it is injected into plants, citrus plants as it feeds. So we need to do something about that. When do we start doing this? When do we start introducing species, whether intentionally or accidentally, to places where they're non-native to? Was this ever since humans started traveling long distances and brought species with them? Yes, that's exactly right. As soon as humans started moving, they have taken plants and animals with them, either intentionally or those organisms have hitchhiked along. So there's examples of invasive species being moved by the Roman Empire as it colonized 
areas west along the Mediterranean out towards England, for example. And I think the rabbit was one animal that they took with them for feeding. Sailors that were traveling across the oceans, you know, in the time of Columbus, were releasing pigs and goats onto oceanic islands to establish food supplies should they ever wind up coming back to those islands or being shipwrecked there. People have moved plants with them. The Polynesians, as they swept through the South Pacific colonizing islands, took with them a rat, the Kiori, Ratus exulens, which has created a lot of environmental problems because of its predilections for feeding on flightless birds. Mm. So as soon as humans started moving, we have accidentally and or intentionally moved non-native species with us. Not all of them have been bad. Some have been really good for us. Consider some of our crop plants. We grow a lot of rice and wheat, cotton, for example, citrus, avocados. These things have been very important for us. We have sheep and cows. Often they haven't become problematic, but certainly goats, rats and dogs and feral cats have become a big problem for, for us to deal with. And what is what is that difference between non-native species and invasive species? As in, when does a non-native species cross the line to be considered invasive? Yeah, so we do have a lot of non-native species that live in California or other parts of the United States, and you can think of them as being well-behaved. They don't cause us any problems, and they may even provide us services that are very useful to us. Crop plants are a great example of this. Maybe some of the animals that we farm, like chickens, for their eggs. They haven't escaped and become problematic. So for me, when something becomes invasive, it crosses the line. It becomes an economic or ecological problem. It ends up causing enough damage that we need to consider the development of management strategies for it. And those management strategies may even need to be applied to the urban areas in which we live. So, for example, we have a lot of invasive insects that attack and kill eucalyptus trees. Some people are happy about that because they don't like the eucalyptus tree. A lot of other people are upset about it because it's an important ornamental tree for our urban forests and it provides a lot of shade. You know, other insects may cause problems for us in our wilderness areas. And one insect that we've been dealing with is the gold-spotted oak borer, which has killed thousands and thousands of native oak trees in the Cleveland National Forest. It is now spread up into Idlewild. It's up in the Big Bear area now. It's killing a lot of our native oaks. It was accidentally introduced into California from Arizona, where it is native, where it feeds on oak trees. But once it got to California in firewood, probably introduced into the Cleveland National Forest in San Diego County, that beetle has become very bad. It doesn't behave the same way it does in Arizona. And that mm -hmm. may be because of the species of oak trees that we have here. It's different. And our native oaks seem to be very sensitive to attack by the gold-spotted oak borer. And as the trees die, people are cutting them down, selling them for firewood, selling that firewood, and the beetle gets moved to Idlewild. It gets moved up to Big Bear as people move truckloads of oak firewood around. Mm. The beetle has caused so much damage that parts of the Cleveland National Forest hiking trails and campgrounds were closed because of the fear of limb drop from these dead, these huge 100-plus-year-old oak trees that have been killed by the gold-spotted oak borer. Fire risk has increased. The habitat has changed. Native animals that rely on the oak trees won't have the shelter or food that they need as the gold-spotted oak borer kills these magnificent native oaks that you know, really define the 
landscape for the wilderness areas of Southern California, the oak savannas, for example, it's an iconic landscape here. Gold spotted oak borer is changing a lot of that stuff for us. So, I mean, beyond the one or few species that invasive species prey on, this can have kind of like a ripple effect across an entire ecosystem. That's right. The, the impacts can be cascading. So the gold-spotted oak borer and the removal of the oak tree, which is a keystone tree in a lot of Southern California ecosystems, the removal of that tree will affect not only the insects and birds that live there, maybe deer as well that rely on that type of habitat. I've even been reading articles that suggest that the shade that those oak trees provide are very important for riparian areas because the sun can't hit those damp areas and dry them out. And we have native amphibians, lizards that live in those damp areas. And once the trees go and the sun gets in, it transforms those riparian areas into rock hard mud, basically, Mm -hmm. where nothing can live. So what are some ways that invasive species have traditionally been dealt with? And I know your work centers around biological control. So why did you choose to focus on that? Yeah, so for me, biological control is a parsimonious way of reducing pest densities to less damaging levels. And what I like about this approach is that we don't have to rely on pesticides to do the pest control. Instead, we use natural enemies to to do this job for us. And that means it saves people money. There's less pollution going into the environment. And we are able to sustain, say, organic food production systems or integrated pest management plans that have been developed for crops because we are not 100% reliant on pesticides for suppressing damaging pest populations. If it's more cost-effective to do this, why don't more conventional farmers that currently use a lot of agrochemicals shift towards biological control? One reason that biological control is not used as widely as it can be is that one pesticide application will kill a lot of different pest species with one application. The thing with biological control, which makes it so effective, and then I guess conversely, in some ways, makes it less desirable, is that when we run biological control programs, We look for natural enemies that are very specific to the target pest. And there's two reasons for that. It means that they're going to have a close linkage to that target pest. So they will always be hunting around looking for it to either feed on it or use it as a reproductive host. And because of that tight linkage to the target, it also reduces greatly the risk to non-target species, maybe desirable things that we want in the environment. We don't want our natural enemies attacking those good bugs or those desirable insects and driving down their populations to low levels. So each time you control an invasive pest with a natural enemy, it's very specific just to that one pest. Whereas if you are a grower and you're maybe managing a half a dozen different invasive pests in your orchard, you don't want to have to be applying 10 different types of controls when you can go out with one pesticide make one application and kill a lot of different pests with one with one application. So that's one reason why biological control may not be as widely used in agriculture, for example, as it could be. So when we run these programs, we often develop what's called an integrated pest management program, 
where we might find very good natural enemies, we release and establish them. And then to deal with the other pests that that natural enemy does not control, we will look for selective insecticides that will attack the other pest species but leave our natural enemies unharmed. And that's the basis of an integrated pest management program. You try to get as much use out of your natural enemies as possible and then apply selective insecticides only at the time when they're needed. So what would the long-term impacts be of, on the one hand, constantly applying pesticides year after year to wipe out all, all species of insects and maybe other life on, on the farmland as well, as opposed to integrated pest management through more biological methods, where instead of killing off all the biodiversity of life there, you're enriching that life by making, making the biodiversity of life there more complex. What would the long-term effects of either of those be? Right. So both of those aspects have been well studied in agriculture. So we'll study with intensive pesticide use first. The, the negative impacts of regular heavy pesticide use are well documented. They include something called the development of insecticide resistance, where natural selection ends up creating basically bugs that can tolerate heavy pesticide applications. And the reason that happens is that if pesticides are wiping out 98% of the population, those 2% that survive have genes that allow them to tolerate the pesticide. And then those genes get passed on to their offspring and then passed along to the next generation and the next generation until you end up with a pest population that is almost entirely tolerant of the applications that are going on. The second thing is those pesticides wipe out a lot of the beneficial organisms that we want in our orchards. They might be natural enemies. They might be pollinators. They could be insects that work the soil to make compost and humus and to aerate it. They could be accidentally killed by these pesticide treatments as well. Then there's drift. Often these pesticides are put on as sprays, and if it's windy or foggy, some of those residues can be volatilized. They move around as aerosols and then they get carried long distances from the areas in which their use is intended. They can end up in our groundwater. We end up with residues on the foods that we eat. And a lot of those pesticides end up in our bodies when we eat them and they may bioaccumulate or they may mimic hormones in our bodies and cause health problems. So there are a lot of potential downsides to using insecticides heavily. So the good side of developing an integrated pest management program is that we lessen our reliance and use of insecticides. We apply them only when they are needed. And as a consequence, we conserve the natural enemies in our orchards. We enhance pollinators because the residues aren't going to be on the leaves and on the flowers, killing bees and other good insects that come to pollinate our flowers. When you pick and harvest fruit, they should have less residues on them. Therefore, it should be safer for young adults, especially children, for example, to eat. And then there's just the whole idea that you can do healthy farming with reduced inputs that people find very appealing. And that can be used as a marketing tool as well to say that this produce is coming either from an organic orchard or an orchard that practices integrated pest management. To help us further understand the application of your work right now, I know you've been working on weevils as an invasive species in California. Can you share a little more about that? Yeah, so 
we're dealing with something called the South American palm weevil, which is in San Diego County, right? It's a non-native weevil. It's native to the tropics of Central America, parts of South America, southern parts of Mexico, and the Caribbean. It has now spread its way out of those natural tropical jungles where it feeds on palm trees. It's a specialist on palms. And it made its way up into Tijuana in 2010. And then by about 2011, it had crossed over the border and it established populations around San Isidro in southern San Diego County. And now it's spread its way all, all the way up to San Marcos now in San Diego County. And it's just left the trail of thousands of dead palms behind mm. it as it continues to move. And the palm tree that it really likes eating in the urban environment are the Canary Island date palms. These are a classic palm tree. You see hundreds and hundreds, thousands of them in the environment here in Southern California. And those are the palms that are pruned to sort of look like pineapples. You know, the, mm. the bulb sits at the top of the trunk. All the dead fronds are pruned off it, and you end up these green, bright green, large fronds that sort of project upwards and then start cascading down the sides. Well, this weevil really loves those palm trees. But you could take a step back and go, well, you know, who really cares? It's an ornamental palm. It doesn't really provide much in way of food or shade. And that is absolutely true. But there are two other aspects to look at that invasion. First, people are now applying lots and lots of pesticides to palm trees to protect them from the palm weevil. That is something they did not do before. It's costing more money and it's putting more pesticides into the environment where they didn't exist before because their use was not needed. The second thing that's of concern to us, and this is the primary concern that's driving the research that we're doing, is that this weevil is known to attack the edible date palm. And we have an edible date palm industry out in the Coachella Valley. And it's about 10,000 acres in size. It's worth about 60 to $69 million per year. And it's a major employer of people in an area where there aren't a lot of jobs available. So we are very worried that the palm weevil may end up out in the Coachella Valley attacking the edible date palms. And this could create a real big problem for the date growers out there who have never had to manage a, a pest like this before, one that could actually kill their date palms. And that would really drive a lot of pesticide use to protect those date palms should that weevil establish out there. So we're trying to do research now to come up with management solutions for the date growers out in the Coachella Valley by running experiments in urban San Diego County. And some of the work that we've been looking at involves different types of traps, different types of baits, mixing different types of baits in those traps with the aggregation pheromone that the weevil responds to. We've figured out how to use drones to survey the palm trees and how to map palm trees and how to identify weevil damage using aerial data that we collect with, with drones. We're also working with pesticide companies to evaluate different types of insecticides to see how effective they are at killing the palm weevil. Because we realize that insecticides may be an important tool that the date growers out in the Coachella Valley may need. But we don't want them to be relying on that as their sole management tactic. So perhaps for a combination of using traps that attract the weevil and they go into these buckets and they can't escape, if those are effective and research suggests that they're very good at pulling in large numbers of weevils, growers may not need to spray as often. Mm. And then the third thing we're looking at 
is that there is a parasitic fly which kills about 50% of these palm weevils every year in Brazil. And I'm in the process now of setting up collaborative networks with researchers in Brazil who have worked on this parasitic fly. I'd like to go down there for about a month, study the fly, see what its biology and behavior is like, and determine whether or not that could be a safe natural enemy we could bring back to quarantine here at UC Riverside. And if we do get it back to quarantine, then we run a whole host of safety tests to make sure that that fly will not create any other environmental problems. We really want to demonstrate that the only thing it likes to eat is the South American palm weevil and not monarch butterflies or bees or anything else that could be useful to us. Now, are the date palms at threat by the weevils just because these palm trees haven't developed self-defense mechanisms against the weevil beetles as maybe some of the trees where uh, the beetles are native to may have? Or is this because the weevil beetles don't have a natural predator in California to help keep their population in check? Yeah, so you've hit two really important points there, and and they're both correct. So the palm trees that the weevil is, is really killing right now, the Canary Island date palm, is native to the Canary Islands, which sit off the uh, western shoulder of Africa. And those tree, those palms have no evolutionary history with palm weevils. So they're very sensitive to the attack of the palm weevil. Therefore, they die within about three to six months of being infested. Sitting on top of that particular issue, the host plant sensitivity or vulnerability is the lack of natural enemies controlling South American palm weevil populations here. The densities in San Diego County where we are working are insanely high. The numbers of weevils I trap per month in our bucket traps, if you were, say, a a palm grower in Brazil trying to deal with this level of infestation, you would be out of business. Mm. You just would not be able to sustain this heavy population pressure. So we can't do much about the innate sensitivity of the Canary Island date palm or the edible date palm to attack by the South American palm weevil. That would require a really extensive breeding program to see if you could come up with resistant palm varieties, and I see no interest in doing that at this stage. However, we could lessen the impact on those palms if we find a really good natural enemy that could reduce South American palm weevil densities by 50%, I mean, that would be a remarkable achievement and would certainly lower insecticide use as well. In some ways, do you think the concept of invasive species can be anthropocentric, as in it's based off of what we, we feel like is getting in the way of our convenience and our livelihoods? Oh, that's absolutely true. Anything that's a pest is called a pest because a human has defined that as something problematic that they don't want to deal with. So if you were to take all of us, by all of us, I mean all us humans out of Southern California and just leave these species here to do whatever they liked, well, they'll just do whatever they like and they wouldn't be bothering us because we wouldn't be here to be bothered by it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it is, it's, it's a human-defined problem and a human-generated problem. So Mm. you're right. It is completely human-driven depending on what angle you look at it from. And I mentioned earlier, some people think that all organisms belong on this planet. Therefore, they're all native, regardless of where they end up. And then there are other folks, you know, conservationists, for example, who don't like 
seeing non-native species in wilderness areas because they change the natural history of that particular place and turn it into something that it traditionally was not. Mm. Well, it's very true that we're generally the the introducers of non-native species. So we're generally the ones that start these issues of invasive species for ourselves. <laughs> no, that's right. And it's all around trade and tourism and humans have been doing it at an accelerating frequency ever since Columbus pretty much took off and started exploring the world. And that inspired other waves of explorers who traveled around the world and Invasive species have hitchhiked along for the ride on those boats, went to aircraft, and then, you know, tourism and trade have resulted, have accelerated the spread of non-native species into new areas. Mm. I want to take this on a little bit of a tangent. So with globalization, we as humans are often living in regions where we're not native to. So mm -hmm. I have two questions pertaining to this. Native species often have evolved over time to fit in as a part of the whole ecosystem and knows its own role to take and give and live in a way that's suited for that environment. So based on the de definitions that we've explored, would you consider non-native peoples who have colonized lands we're not native to and are degrading and harming the ecosystems there? Would you call many of us non-native people as invasive species? Yeah, there's a lot of debate around around that, and that, that's a hard one to, to define. You've got to be very careful as you start discussing these types of issues because you quickly end up wandering into territory where you could be called a nativist, for example, or a nationalist. And people become quite alarmed about the definition of what's native and what's not native, especially when it comes to humans, for example. Because humans have always moved around the planet and we have moved into other areas and we have colonized those areas and we have changed the habitat to suit ourselves. And that in many ways is an example of what invasive species do, especially when they start degrading and damaging the environment. So yes, I can see arguments as to why people would consider humans to be a horrible invasive pest problem <laughs> <laughs> and one in, in need of urgent control based on you know what we're doing right now. But then there's the other side of that where people argue, well, well, we are humans and we're at the top of everything right now. And what's wrong with bending the world to our needs? And why should humans not have the right to do this type of environmental change? So it really depends where you come down on these types of issues based on your own personal philosophy. Mm. Well, regardless of the categorizations, because that's often what keeps people stuck, what does it mean for us if we want to keep ourselves in check to not be degrading our environment so that we can live sustainably within our ecosystems wherever we are? Yeah, so that's a very complicated question to, to answer. You need to come at that from many levels. So there's not only the invasive pest problems that we have been discussing, you have to think about sustainable, you mentioned sustainability, you know, sustainable energy sources. How can we deal with our own inefficiencies when it comes to waste management, our roading, the air pollution that, that we create through driving fossil fuel vehicles around, environmental rollbacks from the government right now is creating a lot of concern to people that the advances that we have been making over the last 20, 30 years can be undone very quickly with the stroke of a pen. 
Mm. And a lot of folks are very worried about how long it could take to remediate the damage that could be caused within a couple of years compared to the 20 or 30 years it took to ameliorate that problem in the first place. So in many ways, people like myself, who are not just entomologists, but work on air pollution control, you know, sustainability when it comes to, uh, to alternative sources of electricity, you know, whether it's wind or water or solar derived, our recycling issues, how can we make more efficient roads, you know, hydrogen powered cars, for example, all this sort of stuff needs to be looked at and it is being looked at, but some areas move faster than others and you feel like there's good progress in some areas, but horribly slow in others and maybe even regressive in, in areas as well. So we all need to chip together, pull our weight and do what's right. And you see, you know, I ride my bike to work every day. It's not that far. It's only a couple of miles. But I, I am dismayed most mornings when I come in along the road coming into work to see how many people drive along the road throwing out bags of fast food trash. Mm. They've just basically eaten their breakfast in the car, bundled up the plastic bag it was handed to them in, and just tossed it out the window. And I say, why do people do that? Why cannot they cannot dispose of that trash properly and put it in the trash can when they get home or at work? Why toss it out the window? So there's just a basic level of maybe education, I'm not really sure, or just an understanding of, of what's the right thing to do. And I think we're losing our way when it, with a lot of people that just don't see, you know, responsibilities as being the right thing to do anymore. Well, with globalization and with people's ability to be so well adapted going all over the place, there is only going to be more and more non-native species being introduced to different places all over the world. So is there even a way to prevent that? And if not, does this mean that slowly over time, our ecosystems are going to homogenize and lose their unique diversity? Right. So this is another area of, of high debate in the, in the scientific world where invasion biologists get together. Now, there's a title of a book called Our Feral Future, where basically all the argument is being made where all our ecosystems will be dominated by, say, a dozen invasive species of insect, animal, and plant. They just seem to do well everywhere. And those feral-type animals will end up ruling the roost. And then there are other ways that, well, maybe things aren't so bad after all. Perhaps we can control some of these invasive pests through, say, biological control, for example. That doesn't mean that we eradicate them. We just keep their numbers down to tolerable levels, and that gives other species, especially native species, the chance to survive and thrive as well. When you come into LAX, for example, there are quarantines put in place. You know, you get asked, are you moving fruit and vegetables into the, into the state, into the, into the U.S.? So there are management conduits put in place to try and filter out a lot of these invasive pests that people could accidentally be bringing with them. But it's not enough. And there was a study that was released probably about 18 months ago now where these scientists looked at rates of invasion and colonization around the world. And their conclusion was we haven't reached a saturation point yet. <laughs> the numbers of species, new species being moved into new areas is continuing at the same rates or maybe even faster. 
And that curve is basically an upward accelerating line. It hasn't plateaued yet. So this homogenization idea that soon, at some stage, all the ecosystems in the world, within reason, will look very similar, could well end up coming true. So with this inevitability of things being moved around and things being introduced, what is the best way forward for us to ensure that our different ecosystems around the world right now can continue to thrive and that we are able to continually learn what it means to live sustainably where we are? This is, this is another issue that's being discussed a lot. And it all boils down in, in many ways to individual responsibility. Don't move plants food and animals against the quarantine regulations. When you walk into the airport and it says don't bring fruits or nuts or honey into the United States or California, dispose of that stuff. But a lot of people think they can smuggle it through and I bet a lot of them do it every day. And those things end up coming into California. So just think of maybe some mangoes that have been moved out of Southeast Asia. Mangoes out of Southeast Asia are fantastic. You know, some of the most delicious mangoes I've ever eaten were out of Pakistan when we were working over there for a couple of years. And I could see why people would want to put them in their bags and smuggle them back. But then, you know, there's a high risk that you bring all sorts of fruit flies with you that aren't in California. And you get home, you open up your mango, and it's like, oh, this thing's disgusting. Look, it's full of these wriggly little fly maggots. Mm -hmm. Ah, just toss it in the compost heap outside. Well, those flies finish developing, the pupae drop out of the fruit, burrow into the soil. About a week or so later, an adult fly hatches out and then, boom, it's hunting around the neighborhood looking for other fruit to attack. And before you know it, the California Department of Food and Agriculture has scheduled another quarantine. And we have now, say, a Mediterranean fruit fly invasion or some mixed fly invasion that, that we're dealing with. Trade and tourism, people love going to new areas on holiday and they see some plants that they have never seen in California before. And they go, oh, damn, wouldn't that look great in the backyard? <laughs> so what do they do? They, they sneak a few clippings, put them in the luggage and bring them home, graft them or plant them in the backyard. And they didn't realize that they'd brought with them maybe new plant diseases, maybe new types of insects that haven't been in California before. And their backyard becomes the incubator for these new pest problems. Dirt on your shoes. You go to New Zealand and they inspect your hiking gear. If there's mud on your shoes, you've got to clean it off before you can leave the airport. Mm. So making sure you have clean hiking gear, clean camping gear, clean fishing gear that you're moving from place to place will greatly minimize the risk of accidentally introducing non-native species into new areas. But that all comes down to personal responsibility. And whether or not people are going to be willing to put in a bit of effort to do the right thing. And final question. I just, this is super fascinating to me. I feel like I could keep asking a lot of questions for you. But with food being imported and exported from all over the world, how are we ensuring that those don't contribute to invasives? Yes. So food that's moved through official import-export channels are subjected to very high regulation. And I've been involved in some of these evaluation processes to ensure that we don't get unwanted pests coming into California. One system I know very well is the avocado industry, and particularly production in Mexico, Central and South America, 
where California imports directly from those countries a lot of fruit. And there is always the risk that something could come in on those fruit, which could then attack our Californian grown avocados. Well, the USDA, working with their colleagues in these exporting countries, set up inspection systems where orchards need to be certified not to have certain types of pests in them. The packing houses that are responsible for managing the fruit after it's been picked from orchards are responsible for cleaning, fumigating, and packaging undamaged fruit. And then finally, when it gets here, it's subjected to random inspections to see whether or not those exporters are in compliance with the regulations that have been put in place to stop the accidental introduction of pests into California or the United States in general. Now, these systems aren't foolproof, obviously, but they make it much, much harder for things to be moved accidentally into new areas. And it takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of vigilance, and it takes a lot of people constantly working on these systems. And I play a role in this too. So not only do I've, have I helped with, say, biological control for invasive pests after they've come to California, but I've been involved with the development of surveillance systems, early detection programs. Should something come into California, how can we find it quickly and maybe eradicate it before it establishes over a large area? So I've been involved in research programs where we have looked for the sex pheromones of invasive moths that could attack our avocados, for example. I'm hoping that soon we'll be able to begin a project on an avocado feeding weevil that's native to Mexico that we don't want in California. It has a pheromone too. We want to figure out how best to use that pheromone. So there are many different ways we can manage pest species that are associated with the movement of our food around the world. So you may have heard from my last few episodes, I am bringing back our 2020 Green Dreamer planners, and that should hopefully be ready by December. Making last year's version was a huge learning curve for me, and to improve upon that, in addition to featuring the major environmental awareness dates to note, weekly inspirational quotes from our past guests, as well as spacious two full spreads dedicated to each week so you can dream big, plan, and make the most of each and every day, the Green Dreamer planner will also be printed on a 100% post-consumer recycled paper instead of last year's FSC but virgin paper. And it's also going to be printed locally to me and hand-bound in Los Angeles instead of overseas as it was last year in China. I will keep you posted along this creation process, but if you may be interested, you can sign up to our weekly digest at greendreamer.com slash subscribe to stay updated and also so that I can gauge interest on whether this is something that I can continue doing. For now, though, to our final Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Right. So a book that was really profound for me is called Our Stolen Future. And it's about how residues in your diet or that you get exposed to may mimic hormones in your body and how that could potentially affect neural development and your reproductive ability. Mm. It's It's a mind blowing book. It really changed my view a lot on the risks from eating pesticide residues on your food and being exposed to pesticide residues in the environment. The book is our stolen future. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? Uh, That every day I'm trying to do something that's going to help not only people, but maybe make the world a little better place. 
And the other thing I love about being a scientist and running experiments is that each day is a day of discovery. And I think we are extremely privileged being scientists, entomologists, for example, that when we run these experiments and we've figured something out, we have a new piece of knowledge that nobody else in the world knows. And that's unique to us for a short period of time until we start sharing it with other people. If that doesn't inspire you to come to work, I don't know what does. Mm. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Right. So I go to the gym every day. I ride my bike and then I take my boys to swim lessons. So while they're getting their training, I do laps in the pool as well. And I eat a spinach salad every day for lunch. So as soon as I finish talking to you, <laughs> get my spinach salad out of the fridge and I'll eat it. <laughs> nice. Enjoy that. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? Right. So we're working on a couple of really important things right now. The state of California has just banned the pesticide chlorpyrifos, which has well-documented adverse human impacts, especially on young children. And this is a pesticide that's being widely used in agriculture in California. California stood up to the Trump government. The Trump guys said, no, who cares about that? Everybody can go back to using chlorpyrifos. But California stood fast on that. I applaud Gavin Newsom and his colleagues for not yielding to that pressure. That has opened a big avenue for us now, and the California Department of Food and Agriculture is offering uh, research monies to develop alternatives to chlorpyrifos. We are working on alternatives to control invasive ants and citrus orchards. If we can pull this off, it'll make a big difference to the citrus growers in California. And that technology will be available and useful to other food-producing nations that have to deal with invasive ants in their orchards. Mm. What makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? That there's going to be an election coming up in 2020. <laughs> well, Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Mark's research and work, you can head to www.cisr.ucr.edu. Is there anywhere else where we can follow the latest updates, the latest research that you're working on, or is that the best place? Uh, that's the best place. Go to the Center for Invasive Species Research, or I do have my own website where we put up a lot of our biological control work, and that's www.biocontrol.ucr.edu. Perfect. I'll have all of this linked in our show notes as well, so you can find all of that at greendreamer.com in case you're on the go or outside at the moment. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your expertise. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Right. Keep up the good fight and um, just be self-responsible and self-aware and do the right thing. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. I'd like to take another moment to thank our sponsor, Osea Malibu, a skincare line founded by a family of women inspired by the sea and that formulates botanical-powered products that have shown proven results for all skin concerns. To get $10 off your first purchase of $50 or more, you can head to oseamalibu.com slash greendreamer. Again, that's O-S-E-A malibu.com slash greendreamer. Oh, and if you're in the LA area, make sure to stop by their Osea Venice Skincare Studio for their therapeutic facials. As always, you can sign up to our weekly digest to get solutions-driven news delivered to you at greendreamer.com slash subscribe. And if you want to come say hello to let me know that you're tuning in, you can find me on Instagram at greendreamerpodcast or at Kamea Shane. As we're wrapping up here, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. 
So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.